0: You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. WMQA. Hello, and welcome to WMQA, the Comics XF interview podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guest is the creator of the upcoming top shelf graphic novel, Mary Tyler Moorhawk, Dave Baker. Welcome, Dave.
1: hey. Thank you. Thank you. <sighs> Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, oh God, adoring public. Oh god, uh
0: <laughs> the, the, the crowd goes wild. We have crowd now. Uh yeah. so question question for the group. Uh how how was your new year's? This is our first show of 2024. So H- how did you spend it, Dave? I what did I do New Year's?
1: Uh I spent New Year's, I think, watching Star Trek New Voyages, the Star Trek fan fan series i think <laughs> i kind of don't remember now <laughs> uh and then i think i did some stuff with family later in the day but yeah most of it was just new voyages i think
2: okay yeah, yeah I just sat on the couch watched some a movie and listened to the people who lived down the street yet again attempt to set their yard on fire with big fireworks they, they haven't done it yet, but they've come close and they continue <laughs> to try.
1: Yeah, that happens a lot in my neighborhood. I, I, I live in a very urban part of Los Angeles and um, it's great. I love living here and the neighborhood's really fun. The only drawback is these motherfuckers love Independence Day and New Year's. So it's just it sounds like a war zone. <laughs> They just, they love it, man. And I'm always like, I don't know, this is the desert. There's not that much fucking greenery here. Maybe we should chill out on the, like, you know, Roman candles and the, the flamethrowers that we're strapping to our back, but whatever.
2: You know, I was walking up the block on the 4th of July, taking my daily walk and I see them and it's the, like the big old shooting off into the sky and actually, you know, causing an explosion. And I was like, Oh boy, your lawn is smoldering. It's been a dry summer. This is yeah. not a good idea. But yeah. I think you're you're two blocks down. So I'd have plenty of time for the, the fire department to get here. So I'm not gonna not gonna yuck your yum. You know, if you want to burn your house
0: down, that's that's you, baby. Just licking your <laughs> finger, holding it up to the wind. Will this hit my house?
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, well, I got trashed and I explained to tweens that Stan Lee was a self aggrandizing fame seeker who downplayed the contributions of his collaborators to create the Stan Lee persona and that Bob Kane was even worse because they just won't teach this stuff in schools.
1: I respect it, man. You're, 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 you're cribbing my stump speech. I feel like that's me at every fucking convention. Um, does your. Does your... God, I hate um, Bob Kane's speech. Include a brief but very detailed description about the plaque on his grave.
0: No, go on,
1: dude. You gotta you gotta incorporate this into your speech, right? So, as we all know, Bob Kane, flaming piece of shit, but the man had theatrics, and you gotta give it to him. Uh, and his his gravestone is a book. It's a sculpted book that's like splayed over. And on one side is the Gotham City skyline with the bat signal. And then underneath it is this like scroll that said, um, you know, uh, Bob Kane or Robert Kane was born this day, died that day. uh, And he received, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's basically he received a vision from God and that became Batman. And he did his entire life's work giving the world batman <laughs> like it's insane if you just google like bob Kane, uh grave it, it's it's a it's a it's a hell of an experience
2: i assume you know the story about the clown paintings
1: oh my god this is the, this is the other I story that, i, I always tell story.
2: yes that, that is my bob that's my favorite bob Kane story he even ghosted the fucking oh, clowns oh yes
1: oh i love Dude, I, 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 brethren, man, brethren, I'm so excited. That's literally anytime anybody's like, but Bob Kane created Batman. I tell that story, the Bob the Bob Kane, you know, created the, the, with the clown. This is my future, giant clown paintings. And then there's a ghost artist for those clown paintings. And the, you gotta look at this, you gotta look at this, uh, you know, this gravestone. stone. Yeah.
2: I have found a copy and I, I, I I'm planning to read it for a, a, another side project, but a copy of his autobiography, which I guarantee you is ghosted by about 30 other people too. And I just, I cannot imagine. you know, And Batman sprang fully formed from my head, like Athena from Zeus, while Bill Finger, Jerry Robinson, Dick Sprang, and Shelley Ma. Off, all kind of stood in the
1: background and looked reverently upon me 100 so this is so i just googled it while, while you were talking and uh so it's it's this is what the this is what his this is what bob kane's gravestone says which is sculpted to look like a book robert kane aka bob kane october 24th uh 1915 to november to november 3rd 1998 god bestowed a betrayal God bestowed a dream upon Bob Kane. Blessed with divine inspiration and a rich imagination, Bob created a legacy known as Batman. Introduced in May of 1939, uh, introduced introduced in a May of 1939 comic book, Batman grew from a tiny acorn into an American icon. A hand of God creation, Batman and his world uh and its world personality and the eternal struggle of good versus evil with god's laws prevailing in the end bob kane bruce wayne bob kane comma bruce wayne batman they are all one and the same bob kane uh bob infused his du- dual sorry this picture is a little uh, grainy which is why i'm struggling to read it bob infused his dual Identity, character with his own attributes, goodness, kindness, compassion, sensitivity, generosity, intelligence, integrity, courage, purity of spirit, and a love of all mankind. <laughs> you can't say he's humble, though. Uh, Batman is known as the Dark Knight, but through his deeds, he walks the in the light of a higher power, as did his, as did his creator, Bob Kane, beloved husband, father, grandfather, in loving memory.
0: I, I'm sorry. You said this was a tombstone, correct? Yeah, dude.
1: It's a tombstone. Yeah, it's a tombstone. It's like it's a. How book big is this it's fucking like...
0: tombstone?
1: I know, right? I know. Isn't you that need crazy? like the side of
0: a mausoleum to write all that?
1: Yeah. as yeah, you yeah.
0: Said
2: that. I honestly, I think I heard the sounds of Jerry Robinson, Dick Sprang, and a. a Bill Finger, they're, like, their corpse is spinning so hard that they drilled into the ground. Good yeah. God.
1: Yeah, I just put the image in the chat. And man, <laughs> the ego on that guy. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah.
2: yeah let it never. Wow. Yeah. Son of a gun. That yeah. is. <laughs> there are presidents with smaller gravestones than that.
1: I mean, I've been to, I've been to Jack Kirby's, I've been to Mobius's grave. um, I've been to Jerry or Joe, Jerry Siegel. I've been to Jerry Siegel's grave. And they're all very classy, you know, they're all like, you know, uh, Jack Kirby's grave just says like, uh, Jack, uh, Jack Kirby and a little crown over it. And it's, you know, the dates of his life. Um, uh, Jerry Siegel's is a little bookcase. It's a little, like, his ashes are in an, in an urn that's shaped like a little book, like a row of books that has, like, Superman, Funny Man, G.I. Joe, and a bunch of other, like, stuff written on the spine of the books. And then the little plaque that says, here lies um, Jerry Siegel, or Jerome Jerry Siegel, date to date, um, co- uh, co-creator of Superman. And he's he's in a, in a he's at Hollywood Forever Cemetery um, in this thing called the Columbarium, which is a like cylindrical building that is on the grounds of the, um, that is on the grounds of the, of the cemetery, but it has like these like, it's, it sounds cheesy, but it's actually really like a spiritual experience being in there. These, these little like cubbies where like every wall has like, every, you know, you basically buy like a one foot by one foot square cubby and you can put whatever mm-hmm. you want in there. And, um, there's lots of celebrities in there and lots of really sad, you know moving pieces and memorials to people like there's one like two or three people down from jerry siegel that's like a young boy who committed suicide and there's like his xbox controller in there and like it's really just yeah it's really dark um but the jerry siegel one is it's him in that urn shaped like a stack of books and an urn with his wife and his wife's pictures on the front like split in half with a drawing of lois lane and you know it says her name and it's like she's she was the inspiration for lois lane and she they originally met because she was the model and then they fell in love and so on and so forth and um yeah it's very it's very nice very nice tribute to him um and um i i can't say the same for bob kane uh just pure ego
2: you've got me going down a rabbit hole of what are the graves of the (laughs) the great creators of the golden age i mean Eisner is just beloved husband and father. Yeah. With his name very, very low. Where's he
1: buried? Do you know?
2: Um, let's see if it says. Uh it does not seem uh Mount Pleasant Cemetery, Hawthorne, Westchester County, New York.
1: Oh, okay. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um yeah, I uh this is <laughs> yeah, I guess we're getting into it. This is what, this is what I do in my free time. Is I go <laughs> hang out and and you know, I mean I guess it's it's a little bit of a pithy overstatement. But like I I like to go to graves and and sites, uh, memorial sites for people just to kind of you know, kind of pay homage, pay respects in an, in an homage way of, you know, saying, you know, thank you for the impact that you've made on me in my life, you know, when I I Earlier in the year I was living in France for a while and I went to Montparnasse Cemetery where Mobius is buried and I left a little pen on his uh his grave. He has a, a like a block grave with a bonsai tree growing out of it. Um, and it just says Jean Girard artist, you know, date to date. Um and um yeah, it's very it's very classy. He was a Buddhist, so there's like little there's a couple little Buddha statues and um there's a lot of like plants growing out of his grave. Um and, uh, uh, I also went to Bela Lugosi's grave, um, who was not, again, not auspicious or, or kind of, um, big in any way. It's literally, he doesn't even have like a separate kind of like plaque. It's like just a tiny footer in like, in a row of people. Um, and it just says Bela Lugosi, and then the days of, I think it says beloved father, maybe something like that. Um, and you know, if you didn't know, you wouldn't know, um the kirby one is
2: really that's really nice it's, yeah it's very very understated but just just enough that's
1: yeah yeah when i went to i went there when i turned 30 29 uh i i don't really remember i think 30 though um because he's buried in the town that my partner's mother lives in so we go up there for you know family functions or whatever and i realized that like oh that's where he lived so you know one year for my birthday i went to see his old house which now somebody else lives in which is really weird um we were like sitting out front taking photos and like you know like a family <laughs> rolls out and starts packing up the minivan <laughs> full of kids and i was like Ooh, maybe we should be taking photos right now
2: Now um, you're the first person
1: yeah yeah i hope so i hope so <laughs> um so we we went that we went, we went there and went to see his old house and then we went to the cemetery and when, when I was there, it, I think it was maybe like the 100th or right around the 100th anniversary of Cap, maybe, or something. Mm-hmm. I don't remember because there was a there was a bunch of Cap stuff. Like people brought like a rock that was painted like his shield and like some pencils and like a little thing of flowers that had like a Captain America, um, you know, kind of theme to them. And they were like in a bow that said Captain America on it and stuff. It was really cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so you know, like I said,
0: uh,
1: I don't really even know why I do this, but I but I do this quite frequently. Not yeah.
0: I, I feel like if anybody's allowed to have like a big ostentatious grave, it is Kirby though. Like I almost want like a granite carving of of like life size side in the or middle, or just like of... a
1: big dude, like you know, with <laughs> a hand stretched out. You know,
0: yeah, with like stone crackle all around it, yeah. or. <laughs> Ben Grimm sitting there, you know,
2: that was Kirby's persona. Ben, you know, with his, yeah, head yeah, yeah. his hands behind his head, just
1: reclining. Yeah, yeah that'd, that'd be good. Me. It would be I, that's what I want selfishly as a fan. But I don't know that the Kirby's and or specifically Jack, that that speaks to his personality. You know, he's a pretty humble guy. He's a pretty mm-hmm. kind of laid back, just kind of demure, like, yeah, I'm just making these funny papers type of dude.
2: I think he would rather have seen a big statue of Barda on Roz's
1: grave than something (laughs) big on his own. Or, let's be real, a big statue of Barda on his grave. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's that in that I forget if it's that comics journal interview the one that Bros is like sitting in the same room with him like helping him through or one of the other interviews but the fact that he talks about like every short guy we just dream of big women like I just like I'm like is this every short guy or is this you Jack is this like your thing Let well, him I'm have a, it the silence in here. The silence in here just got deafening. <laughs> I think that I think you guys, whether you wanted to or not, I think you just admitted something. <laughs>
2: the, the, the thing is, we're both tall guys. So it's kind of like I, I don't know, but it made me think about all my friends who were short. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's it's I yeah, I'm I'm fascinated with, with Kirby's interview styles, specifically just because he doesn't he's not very good at it. He kind of like, I think the thing that comes across in his writing that people didn't necessarily love when Stan and him part ways is that he's, he kind of speaks the way he writes, which is these weird, like cylindrical kind of sort of parabolitic thought patterns where he's like kind of talking around a subject instead of answering a direct question with a direct statement. Um, And uh Because he's not particularly guarded, he's also fairly open about things, which is very interesting. Uh, You you don't always get what you ask when you ask him a question, but you always get something interesting, at least in my opinion.
0: So uh, you are here to talk about Mary Tyler Moorhawk, which is your new graphic novel from IDW's Top Shelf uh, Imprint, dropping February 14th. Uh, Matt, take us on an adventure. Who is
2: Mary Tyler Moorhawk? How did she save the world from a dimension hopping megalomaniac? Why was her TV show canceled after only nine episodes? These are just a few of the questions that young journalist Dave Baker begins to ask himself as he unravels the many mysteries surrounding the obscure comic book, Mary Tyler Mohawk. However, his curiosity grows into an obsession when he discovers that the reclusive creator of his favorite globe trotting girl detective is also named Dave Baker. That was
1: good. That was good. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Good job.
0: So first off, I want to say this, this graphic novel eats like a meal. You know, usually when we have a guest with, with, with an OGN, I could, you know, in prepping for the show, I can rip through it in like two days. This one I started Christmas week and needed until this Saturday morning uh, to finish. So congrats on this chonky stew. First of all, Um, thank you. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I, you know, it's, it, uh, I hope you liked it, but I will say that that, that, that also was, um, that was explicitly part of the thing when I started making this book, uh, it took me about four years to make, um, and I started it, uh, uh during the process of us debuting um, our Dark Horse graphic novel that got nominated for an Eisner, uh, everyone's tulip with my collaborator Nicole Goo. And um one of the things that we heard a lot in that press, you know cycle was, oh, I read it in one sitting or oh, I read it in 20 minutes, or oh, I read it in you know, whatever. And while it was nice because I understood that the the the, the sentiment behind the sentiment was, this was very easy to consume and i liked consuming it it also is somewhat you know there's a mixed emotion there for me as an author where you spend four years working on a book three years working on a book even a year working on a book and somebody says yeah i read it in seven and a half minutes and you're like well fuck me (laughs) like what did i what ah i mean like i said it's a positive thing i understand it it means that somebody liked it and they found it easy to consume which is the idea you don't want to make something that's hard to consume but also i wanted i wanted to make something that was hefty and had weight to it and was dense and had a lot of potential discussion topics and a lot of kind of things for the reader to get lost in in the same way that the character of dave baker the journalist or the cartoonist making the comics uh, or me got lost in it. So I want to start off with the hard question.
2: Dick Van Dyke, Mary Tyler Moore, Mary Tyler Moore show, Mary Tyler. (laughs) Uh,
1: It's so interesting when people bring up Mary Tyler Moore in (laughs) in conjunction, in conjunction with this, because I am fully aware that it's a pun. But I always forget until someone brings it up because you're so I'm so close to it. You know, like I literally don't even think of it as a pun anymore, where like a lot of my ideas start with a really stupid root of just like, wouldn't it be funny if and this is a perfect example, you know, you start with Mary Tyler Moore and then it's a weird. It's not even really a pun. I don't even know what it is. It's just like an extension that's like a joke because we all know about the comedian Mary Tyler Moore um but the 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 process of being reminded all the time of that is not something I I always I don't see her as that anymore so it's always funny to have that brought back up um I don't know I I think I like I like them both dearly but I think today I'm a Mary Tyler Moore show Mary Tyler Moore I think. Okay. There's something about the energy of that show that's very uh, you can feel that she was really sinking her teeth into it. She, you can feel that she was like, I am going to make this work like on pure charisma and I'm just going to push this through, you know, um, and uh, I, I like and relate to that.
0: <laughs> so uh, how did how did this how did pitching this go? You know, did you have to shop it around to a few publishers uh you know is it something that that can to use the term can be is this something that can be quote unquote elevator pitched when you're describing it to a prospective publisher
1: um i think uh you know the answer to this question by the fact that you're even asking
0: <laughs> can
1: you elevator pitch this uh so the process of selling this book uh i was a lengthy one it was a lengthy one um Um, that being said, the process of selling every book is a lengthy one. Anytime I hear an interview with someone, they're like, yeah. And then I just wrote like a two sentence thing and gave it to my editor and they just gave me a deal. I was like, what world do you live in? What? That's what? Um, so basically, you know, I, I, I pitched it with that kind of elevator log line of, you know, I want to do a hybrid graphic novel and novel thing. Um, to a, a few places and with a little bit of art i think maybe like eight or ten pages of art but none of the prose stuff had actually been written and of course it was nose across the board and then i pitched it when i had a full issue and then it was nose and i pitched it when i had all of the comic stuff and some of the pros and it was nose and then i pitched it when i had all the comics and all the pros but the book wasn't fully designed yet and it was all nose and then i pitched it when I had every, like basically the finished book that you're reading literally is the PDF that I went around and pitched. Uh, And after that four years of making it simultaneously, pitching it, talking to people, trying to convince people that it was a worthwhile endeavor. Um, Chris Staros at top shelf um saw it and responded to it and asked for a meeting and we talked about it and I, Uh, pitched him you know full throat like hey man this is what it is this is the shape of it and i had i had gotten another offer on the book but it was only for the comics stuff and it Mm -hmm. wasn't a full offer it was like we'd be interested if and it was like just the mary tyler moorhawk comics stuff the action adventure you know a team of Johnny Quest, Buckaroo Banzai-esque in, you know, super scientists traveling the globe trying to stop a spatiotemporal holocaust, Um, which is fun. I, I mean, I really like that stuff. But to me, the book is that narrative and the other narrative about the journalist 100 years in the future writing a zine about being a collector in a world where physical items have been outlawed. And trying to track down the reclusive creator of this TV show that he once watched as a little kid and the process of trying to do that and realizing that they have the exact same name and they're from the same area and they have all these weird like personality overlaps. Um, It was really like all of those things to me is what makes the book. Um, And Frankly, there were many dark hours of the soul where I was like, why did I do this to myself? Why did I fucking write something that was this strange? No one is going to publish this, and I'm going to have wasted four years. Why did I do this? Um, and, you know, last week, uh, there was a review on Publishers Weekly where they gave the book a starred review. And if anybody doesn't know... Publishers Weekly is a book market, not a comics market, a book market um, entity. And they, they get like 20,000 books submitted a year and only about 500 books get reviewed. And then only a percentage of that 500 books gets what they call a starred review, where if they think something is truly exceptional, the interview or the review will run with a red star next to the title. And that that indicates to... Book buyers, readers, and librarians that the work is quote unquote truly exceptional, and um, I'm not going to lie to you. I started crying when I saw that thing because this has been the hardest thing I've ever tried to do, and the fact that it has worked out to the degree that it's worked out in is nothing sort of shocking to me. And it would not without Christaros. Uh, Christaros took a bet on a, something that is really strange. Uh, admittedly and purposefully strange um, and I I just feel so indebted and so fortunate um,
0: that he bet on me. generally, how much work was this project compared to past projects of yours?
1: um it was very difficult on two fronts one, Um, Also, I should say briefly before we get too far into this that uh, the book is created by me and also uh, the graphic designer, Mike Lopez, who did all the design for the prose sections and the photographer, uh, David Catalano, who is an amazing photographer in New York, Um, uh, just because I want to, you know, those two guys, they were my collaborators on this project, and I want to make sure that they get their their shine, as it were. It was a ton of fucking work, though, for two reasons. One, um, I wrote a novel. (laughs) (laughs) And then I also wrote a graphic novel. And then I also illustrated that graphic novel in a style that I had not previously done. Um, I've made a bunch of graphic novels before, but I had always done them in the traditional. You draw it in pencil, then you ink it, and then you scan it in and letter it uh, in the computer. And this time I was really... um, my my drawing style is very detailed and frankly, very laborious. And so I, I didn't want to ink anything because you have to draw. It's one thing to draw those pages. It's another thing to draw those pages fucking twice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to build a working methodology for myself where I could draw the construction lines in red architectural pencil and then draw the finished lines in just a Standard mechanical pencils scan that into the computer pull out the red construction lines and have a finished piece of artwork with only having to draw it once and um, There were quite a few dead ends where I did it and then I Wow that this this process doesn't work the way I need it to and to start over on these pages like specifically the first probably two-thirds of the first issue of the comic Mary Tyler Moore was drawn three times um, and the final one that's in the book is me tracing the second time I drew it. So it's just purely, it, it, there's no even construction lines. It's just me tracing. Whereas the later stuff, I figured out the technical side of it more and was able to draw in this style that I've kind of perfected through the course of making it. Um, I also taught myself how to letter because I lettered in a different program than Photoshop. Um And it was easy, but you have, but just learning the thing takes time. I also fucked up my right hand from doing so much work on this. So I colored it all with my left hand. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it took a while (laughs) because there were multiple points in which I was like learning how to do a thing, hitting a dead end, backing up, going down another direction, hitting a dead end, backing up, going down another dead end. Um, Oh, yeah. And then also the design work, too, which I personally didn't do, but I worked with um, Mike Lopez to do. Um, And the the design stuff actually came from conversations that I was having with David Catalano, because we were talking about doing some sort of project, whether it would be because he also makes music. And we were talking about, oh, maybe I would like write a zine that would come out with his musical projects, or maybe I would, you know, take his photos and then I would write like fictional biographies of the people who lives in these creepy houses that he was taking photos of. Or, you know, I, we were talking about a couple different versions of what a collaboration would look like. And then I had the idea of writing this, you know, futuristic, weird, labyrinthian novel to go with the graphic novel I was doing. And, he, and I was like, can I use your photos for this? And I think he was very surprised that the scale of the project would be this. I think he was thought, thought, thinking I would be like, oh yeah, can I have like Four photos and I was like no 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 no, dude! I need like like 70 photos so we can you know design it to look like a weird mashup of of like a riot girl zine and like a tokusatsu magazine and like make something that truly does look futuristic or whatever um so yeah it was a long process but uh now it is all worth it
0: and in the meantime you're working on on other other comics while this is all happening in the background right
1: yeah, and a full-time day job, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So at what point in the creation of all this did you say, this this book needs so many footnotes it will make a Ryan North comic read like that one issue of Thor that was all splash pages?
1: <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, honestly, it was... <laughs> uh, it was a combination of reading... There's three things. It was a combination of reading um, Mark Z. Danielewski's um, uh, House of Leaves, which is one of my favorite novels. It's really, really good. Uh, if anybody doesn't know, it's about a book. It's a book about a documentary filmmaker who um, makes a movie about uh, this house that he moves into where the inside of the house is bigger than the outside and it keeps getting bigger every day. So the more you walk into the house, the more you get lost in the house. And um, the book is told in this very interesting style where it's not, you're you're not just like reading this guy's account, you're reading a blind Hispanic man's college dissertation about the documentary that he has seen, and that, that document has been found by this tattoo artist named Johnny Truant. So it's like three levels deep. Johnny Truant is like has republished the House of Leaves, which is an account of Zampagno's Davidson record thesis, which is also being published on top of that. So there's like editor's notes, Johnny Truant's notes, Zampagno's text, and then the actual documentary that is in certain places described or transcribed, depending on what you're reading. And uh, that book would just, it blew my fucking socks off. I was like, this is f- so cool. Um, so it was a combination of finding finding that and then also finding um, David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest and his essays, Consider the Lobster and a Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, um, where I just was like thinking about the visual fracturing of text in a way that these people who are obviously not comic book people, but to me, they're making comics because of the interplay between the fractions of text on the page where the text itself becomes image. And so I really wanted to play around with that and also kind of harken back to 1960s editors notes. And, you know, um, Jim shooter, you know, talking shit at you about like, Oh, you got to read this next issue of fucking Spider-Man kid, you know? Um, And so taking that kind of like mixture of highbrow, academic, literary aspiration and lowbrow bootleg culture, you know, kind of shoving them together and mixing them up and seeing what aspects were overlapping and what aspects talked to themselves and what aspects proved to be diametrically opposed. Um, Yeah, so I, I, I just but I also just really like I just like footnotes because I think that they. Mimic the way that we think a lot of the time. Like I don't know about you, but when somebody's talking to me, I'm listening, but I'm also like, oh fuck, I gotta pay rent tomorrow, or oh oh that that reminds me, I gotta you know buy that one issue of you know uh, fucking cricket stuff that I had saved on my eBay store that I never bought, Um, you know, and like so that that fracturing of dialogue, and I don't mean literal dialogue, I mean the 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 narrative dialogue. Um, Felt very applicable to me when constructing something that was uh, hopefully a kind of deconstruction or a parody or a dialogue surrounding fandom and surrounding um, creators' relationships with fandom, um, creators' relationships with their audience, um, and the idea that sometimes a creator can get lost in their own a maze of their own making. Sometimes fans can get lost in a maze of their own fandom. Sometimes those two things overlap and create a really weird toxic situation. And then extrapolating out from that, you know, how our country has become fandomified and our political structures are all about, you know, not actual a belief in an idea or a a honest discussion where both sides of an idea are presented and then individuals who are not allied in an identity um are then making a decision for themselves It's a am listening to a mouthpiece that is then telling me what i want to do to service a greater goal and that greater goal doesn't necessarily align with political means or ends that benefit people but moves a party line forward and increases a market share um that all felt very kind of uh, in dialogue with itself to me uh in a good way hopefully um but you know it's, it's out of my hands now i mean i don't know maybe it sucks i don't fucking know
2: have you ever read any of the the fantasy novels of Sir Terry Pratchett? You know, because Pratchett I, loves loves a good footnote.
1: Yeah, I I actually have not read much Pratchett. I I only am kind of like dimly aware of like the Discworld novels and that there's like five hundred of them. And that's one of those things where I'm like, I I want to read this, but I do I start with the first one? Where do I we'll start? We'll
2: talk with off things? my
1: because I've read them (laughs) all. Um, Oh, you've read
2: them all? Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, I I will say my favorite footnote in there is there's, it's, I believe in the novel Witches Abroad, and it's about, the, the comment in the book is about the importance of spelling, and the footnote tells about someone who made a wish that everything he turned, everything he touched, turned to glod, Instead of gold. So everything he touched turned into a dwarf named Glod who lived a few valleys over. And so his (laughs) kingdom was overrun by Glod.
1: I love it. That's great. Just pure Pratchett.
2: That that (laughs) if you appreciate that joke, you will appreciate Pratchett.
1: That's cool. Yeah. I need to I need to dive in. Yeah, he's one of those people I've been meaning to read more of for like a really long time and just, you know, life.
0: Mm -hmm. So you know, you're obviously a, a student of comics history in the way creators have been dicked up and down throughout it, hence the first 20 minutes of this episode. But how does that affect how and where you shop work around?
1: I think it does. I think it absolutely affects that. Um, I think that's frankly something I'm trying to navigate. You know, I'm trying to figure out where that line is and how that line manifests and what does that mean? Um, I think I'm also well aware of the, the fact that you don't get big name creators without creators who are willing to compromise. You know, I think every, every great artists struggle is their, their true medium is not their given artistic craft. It's, it's how do they handle or navigate compromise? And. Um, I think there are certain publishers that are invested in making comics that push the medium forward. And I think there are certain com- there are certain publishers who are invested in making comics that um, push the bottom line. And then there are certain publishers who publish comics who are not interested in publishing comics. And it's very apparent to me who those are um i'm well aware of the fiscal realities of the industry and how tough things are and how hard it is to make an impact and um i don't behoove or poo poo anyone that's trying to do something that is genuinely in the best interest of the medium um the problem for me is i don't always know that there are, that that is the the governing like modus operandi um which is you know something that i think we'll have to figure out how to narr- navigate in our own way um you know, uh, I think work for hire is a double-edged sword. Uh, I think it's something that I have done quite a few, quite a lot of, and I enjoy, you know, working with those publishers that have hired me to do that, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or Star Trek or Ben 10 or, you know, what have you, it has been a lot of fun. Um, but it also is something that I think comes with a grain of responsibility on my part because i i need to be the one to say this is what i'm comfortable with and this is what i'm not um and uh you know i think that there's there's a multitude of different ways that those mathematical equations can be balanced out to to a net positive uh the problem for me is sometimes it seems like the publisher's Literally aren't even interested in balancing it out to a net positive, um, which is unfortunate.
0: Pivoting here, Mary Tyler Morehawk, the the, the character MTMH, uh, is the latest in a long line of kid science adventurers that stretches from Johnny Quest to the Venture Brothers and everywhere in between. Do you do you have a favorite piece of of media from that specific genre?
1: So many. So many. Um, I am a huge Johnny Quest fan. Um, I, a huge Johnny Quest fan. In fact, I have a, a Johnny Quest poster that's the retailer-exclusive poster from the 86 Kamiko debut, before it was an ongoing when they were just going to do six issues on the wall over there. Um, William Messner Lobes, Mark Mark Hempel, um, Steve Rood, uh, Wendy Peeney, lots of really interesting people. Uh, Dave Stevens, they all worked on that run. Um, so... Other than I think it's I think it's for me, it's the original. Um, well, not technically the original because the originals are really racist, the rewritten Stratemeyer syndicate versions of the first four or five Hardy Boys books and the first probably six or seven Nancy Drew books um, that Edward Stratemeyer's daughter rewrote rewrote in the, the late 60s uh, and that Leslie McFarlane wrote originally. Um, those that era of stuff is really fucking cool to me, um, uh, and Rudy Nappy did all of the the color the color uh, paintings uh, on the covers of those. I think is a, a very impressive body of work. Um, and then also, you know, what I just said, the Kamiko Johnny Quest shit is fucking amazing to me. Uh, the fact that somebody who is not invested in the genre, uh, you know, uh, Bill has said repeatedly that he's not a fan of Johnny Quest, or wasn't a fan of Johnny Quest before getting the job. Um, But he captured those characters, gave them an inner life, um, wrote what to me is the definitive origin of why, um, you know, Benton quest's wife is not with the crew. Um, She's had a couple different reasons of why she's not there um, in the various versions of, of Johnny quest. But I, I, other than the original show that, that, comics run is really really impressive especially the jezebel jade three issue miniseries that um uh bill rowe and is it andy kubert drew i think it's andy kubert one one of the kubert brothers i think it's andy um yeah it's a really impressive body of work um and uh i also i also really love the um fred decker screenplay for the unproduced like 1989 87 86 whatever year that was uh that they were gonna do the year of quest um mm-hmm. uh movie uh, it's very very well written um there's a lot of i'm not gonna fucking lie to you i stole a lot of stuff from that screenplay for mtmh like there's 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 not like full-on scenes but there's a lot of stuff that i just cribbed from there because i just i think it's a great screenplay um the way they handle Dr. Zinn is really cool. He's like an eco-terrorist. Um, uh the way they handle Race Bannon is really cool. Race is kind of the point of view character where uh, you know, he gets assigned to this kind of broken family and everybody kind of orbits race in the story where he comes in to protect these this egghead and his weird, you know, rambunctious kid. And there's one scene where the John him and Johnny are talking. Before they go on a mission and Johnny basically says something to him like, you know, it's really nice to have someone to talk to. I can't really talk to my dad. And then he, there's like a scene, a couple scenes later where Benton says to him, you know, it's really nice to have someone around here. I, I can't really talk to the kids. They're not, they can't keep up with me. And I, I like having someone to bond with. Um, and I think that moment just says so much about the dynamics of who the Quest family could and should be when they're depicted uh, in other media or you know in movie whatever um yeah uh but I'm I'm a huge fan of of that stuff. Uh there's a re- there's a couple really fun um Torchy Smith. Have you guys seen those? There's like they're like basically Nancy drew ripoff movies from like the 30s. Mm-hmm. Um and there's a couple really cool ones of those. Um there's also some really fun Hardy Boy uh serials that were made um uh that I, I enjoy quite a bit. Um and honestly the new Hardy Boys show, the Canadian Hardy Boys show that's on Hulu, I fucking loved that show. It's really good. Uh the the idea that they do in that one is that they age Joe and Frank apart. So instead of being like two brothers that are kind of indistinguishable from each other from a layman's point of view, they keep Frank as a uh you know, 18 19 year old and they age Joe down to be like 12 11. Um, so it's this, it's, there's a, a big kind of like rambunctious younger brother kind of stern older brother vibe, uh, to the adventures, which is really fun. Um, Oh, but then again, there's also the, the seventies one, uh, the, the Nancy Drew, the Hardy boys and Nancy Drew adventure or mystery hour by Glenn Larson that I think that's probably the best they've ever been on screen. Uh, if you don't know that show is split in half where It's uh, a standard episode season, you know, it was a TV show in the 70s where the first episode is Hardy Boys, the second episode is Nancy Drew, the third episode is Hardy Boys, so on and so forth, it alternates like that through the first season. And then the the premiere of season two, um, they cross over and Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys solve a mystery together where there's like a Dracula movie being shot in uh, Hollywood and they get like a stunt casting where they get Lorne Green from Bonanza and... um, and uh Battlestar Galactica to come in and he's Dracula or he's the actor playing Dracula or is he really Dracula who knows who knows <laughs> um yeah but and of, of course Venture Brothers you gotta love Venture Brothers
0: Venture Brothers is great the uh yeah I, Matt and I were talking at Thanksgiving about how the movie was the perfect kind of finale for that uh you know I still series. haven't seen the movie.
1: I haven't seen the movie yet. I need. I've been fucking up. I've been because I've been wanting to rewatch all of it and then watch the movie. But I just have been who who has time to rewatch Venture Bros when I'm out here watching Star Trek fan series? <laughs> I have priorities,
0: Dan. I have priorities. That that's fair, and I respect them. Uh, no spoilers. I'll just it sticks the landing. That's all. That's all I'll say.
1: <laughs> oh man, you just got me so excited. You got me so excited. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a huge fan of both of those guys and a huge fan of the show. And frankly, I think my job is harder now that that show exists because as I think you can tell, I'm a genuine obsessive about the like kid adventurer, you know, boy detective, girl detective genre. And you say anything to anybody about that genre and they're like, oh, like Venture Brothers. And it's like, well, yes, but also Venture Brothers is also apparently like it's making fun of, it's a Ugh, fine. Yes. Like Brothers. Venture Brothers. <laughs> yeah, Venture Brothers. Um but that's just because they did it so well. Like they've just like you can tell that those guys love it as much as I do. Uh and and I I I can just feel that in every frame of the things that they've made.
0: I mean the, if anything, The Venture Brothers was a parody that found an emotional core later. Yeah. But
1: yeah. And also uh, The Venture Brothers 2 did the like the joke that I do where it started as the comic and it started as a comic that um had like footnotes to you know like editors captions to things that didn't exist um if memory serves i believe the first venture brothers is in monkey suit volume three which is a anthology that doc and jackson put together with a bunch of animation people and like pseudo self-published and i think jackson did like eight ten pages of like a story about them in a temple fighting a mummy or something um. Yeah, Olderty Chris McCullough. I yeah, yeah that makes rap name, that right? makes sense because
0: rap- the the was it the third episode of season two was returned to the House of Mummies, and there was an ori- never an original House of Money yeah, Mummies in yeah, the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, there we go. I think, and I think the
1: actual it might. I have it on that shelf somewhere, but I think the the comic might also be returned to the House of something or returned to the Crypt of something. That's like mummy related. Um, yeah, there's a there's a doc hammer story in there that's like him getting really weird and experimental where it's just like people's faces and then like text like just in strain it's not like not it's not even really like a comic it's just like tons of text which i shouldn't throw a stone at this but (laughs) (laughs) it's like it's like all these weird little like you know maze pathways of like you know uh fucking you know i don't even remember what the story's about i just remember being like that text is warped what the fuck! <laughs> this is so hard to read.
2: I love that what Venture Brothers does is it not. Only, it starts out as this one thing, but it expands and takes mm-hmm. in the pastiche of all of these other genres. That you mean you get Sphinx, which is I mean that's GI yeah, Joe, yeah. but the fact that looking at it, if Doc is if if the boys are Johnny quest and even doc is sort of Johnny quest. It's what if, uh, Benton quest was also doc savage and an
1: asshole, but still, (laughs) which is funny because Clark savage jr. Doc savage is the Johnny quest in his own story. Like his dad is the one who puts him on the Island and is like, you're going to be the peak fucking human. You know, you're going to be the best of the best of the best. Which is like a fucked up thing to do to a little kid. Like, it's really fucked, but it's never positioned that way in the books. It's always like, my father marooned me on this island, and it was fucking sick, bro.
0: <laughs> so uh, if, if MTMH knew her creator had made a comic called Fuck Off Squad, but wouldn't let her fire off a swear harder than Sour Apples. Um <laughs>
1: <laughs> this makes me so happy. This is a great question. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. I think that there's it's funny, too. To me, it's really funny because, you know, the the comic Mary Tyler Mohawk is an all ages adventure comic. There's no swearing. The violence is sometimes a little aggressive, but most of the time it's pretty safe. And then the stuff that's in the like prose sections is just depressing and fucked up and people swear. And like, you know, there's like a weird like slave race of people that have been adopted by corporations and forcibly given the corporation as their name and identity and designated as like ambulatory human bodies of the corporations like it's super you know dark um but i that's that to me is the like discordant frequency of like no mtmh the the comic isn't it isn't uh, mature in a way that you would think that a quote unquote adult graphic novel that featured a girl detective would be adult. Like it just is the thing, earnestly. Uh, because I genuinely love the thing that it is, earnestly. And that the physicalist today segments are all, all dark and sad and shitty. And people are getting raked over the coals by corporations and just like strip mined for their ability to generate wealth um yeah i don't know but yeah, yeah i think she'd be grumpy about it probably she'd probably be <laughs> grumpy about it, yeah
0: with the with the stories being uh, with the mary tyler moorhawk stories being in in this uh you know pink and white uh color palette when you found out that the book was dropping on valentine's day how, how did the, <laughs> how did you react
1: yeah, uh, that had not occurred to me until right now. I mean, I know it comes out on Valentine's Day, but I did not. I, I did not think about the fact that it's pink and white. I hope you know what I, you know what I think. My my initial reaction: maybe we'll sell a copy to somebody who's like trying to give their sweetheart some weird thing. Maybe some, maybe somebody's in a comic store and they're like, you know what, my weirdo big brain on Brad partner just would love this strange House of Leaves, Buckaroo Bonsai, Nancy Drewy thing. That's what I'm. That's what I'm hoping for.
0: You're you're keeping someone from from buying their partner a CVS teddy bear and and that's that that's commendable.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The goal, I guess, would be now to like have MTMH be turned into some major motion picture type thing where the Valentine's Day is the anniversary of MTMH's publication. So there's like Valentine's Day themed MTMH toys, you know, like the the fucking, you know, her holding a little thing of flower or whatever with the, with the you know, the pom-pom hair or whatever. I don't know. Flush
0: Cutie Boys. That's that's Dude, the way
1: to go. Flush yeah. cutie, plush cutie Boys is a great idea. Yeah. Uh, I love that little guy. Um, I don't know if you can tell, but I can tell by looking at him that like, oh, you can, o- I feel like I can always tell when there's a comic book artist that's just like not into what they're doing. I read one of those the other day where I, I picked up a issue number one and was like, Yeah, this guy doesn't want to draw what this writer wants to write. And I made it like maybe five or six pages in and was like, "Eh, sorry, guys, I can't do this. This is painful for me. Um, But when I look at Cutie Boy in the book, I'm always like, oh, yeah, that guy was having fun drawing that stupid little robot dude with his you know, circle eye and weird asymmetrical Kikaida face. And
0: yeah, he just wants to do tests. That's, that's all he
1: wants. <laughs> he just wants to just test some stuff, bro. Just let that guy test some shit, you know? Yeah. Also, I have to say that I it is giving me uh, great joy that not only did you read the book, but that you are able to reference the fact that Cutie Boy just wants tests. Uh, because, frankly, I don't expect anyone to have read anything I've done, even when we're doing interviews and stuff. But uh, specifically this book, I think some people have had a little bit of like, oh God, this is so dense. So it's been very, I mean, the questions have been great. Interviews with other people have been really fun, but nobody's pulled a reference like that. And I can read between the lines and know why that is, where uh, I think it speaks highly of your character that you're able to do that.
0: Well, thank you. Um, speaking speaking of Cutie Boy and the look of Cutie Boy, do you have a favorite character design from the MTMH stories? Uh, you know, one of my favorites was I loved the um the little Lamaze guys uh, in the, uh, you know, Cryptomazes chapter because they look like angry little California raisins.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I will say I love drawing him, Cryptomazes, but I can't do it consistently. Like, he, his face is so hard for me to draw that if you notice, like, the first time he shows up, he's fucking awesome looking and then like whenever he's in a nine panel grid he's like okay looking and then when there's a big you know like another big page splash of him like when the that like alternate version dark version of him is like coming out of that well of souls water like he looks fucking awesome and it's like i feel like with him there's like a there's like a like a reservoir of ability to sit there and render those fucking scales on him so i have to like Subconsciously parse out, okay, this is going to be a good one. That's going to be a fine one. Like, all right, people are going to look at that for two seconds or whatever. Um, I think my favorite characters to draw, um, were I really liked drawing Roxy Racer. Um, she was really fun. Um, I really liked, uh, I, I really liked, um, what the fuck is that guy's name? Dre Blazenby, The dude, he's in a bunch of the like splash page pages where he, well, the title page where he's got like heads mm-hmm. for hands. Um, that guy was really fun. Uh, that that design is kind of a ripoff of a design for from a Roger Corman movie called Space Raiders. Space Raiders. Um, it's like a Star Wars ripoff movie. Where there's an alien that's like basically Spock on their ship. And Dree Blazenby is basically, he's kind of that alien. But instead of having hands with digits, he has heads. (laughs) Which is just so funny to me. I don't know why. I'm really easy to please, guys. Really easy to please. (laughs) Is is there a guy and can he have heads for hands? Because that's that's all I (laughs) want to do.
0: I just wanted to point out here. Laz- Dream Lazenby, son of George Lazenby, my mom's favorite bond. <laughs> Mine too! Mine too!
1: Hey! I've got a On Her Majesty's Secret Service poster on the floor right over there. Yeah, oh, right on. Yeah, yeah. I I love George Lazenby, man. Uh, George Lazenby actually holds a very kind of spiritual position to me because I love his origin story. And I feel like can. The last couple years it's become more public knowledge because there was that documentary about him and the Bond franchises come back into resurgence. So people are kind of like, wait, who's that one guy that's standing <laughs> in the row with all of these dudes? Like, who who I don't know that guy. Um, but to me, you know, if anybody doesn't know, George Leesonby played James Bond once. He's an Australian model who lied his way into the audition with Covey Broccoli and at Eon Productions headquarters and told them he was this big actor in Germany. And that he had done all this stuff and he was living abroad and he told them basically just complete falsehoods up until the point where he auditioned for Cubby Broccoli, like the guy who ran the Bond franchise. And they brought him in and they were like, OK, you're going to do a fake fight, like a screen test with this guy. And George Lazenby just walked over to the dude and fucking socked him in the face, broke his nose and dropped him. And they were like, oh, this guy is James Bond. So he gets the role and then he comes clean and says, I've never acted in anything in my life. And they're like, well, you fooled us. So if you can fool us, you can you can do it. So he lands the role of Bond, you know, one of the biggest, most iconic movie roles of all time. And they film this movie and he's a fucking nightmare. They've, it's, you know, on her magic secret service is now considered a classic. But at the time, everybody thought it was going to be the end of the franchise. Um Peter Hunt, the man who had edited all of the previous Bond movies, was taking over as director. So that was seen as like, oh, Guy Hamilton and and all of the other like good Bond directors have moved on. They don't want to do it anymore. So we're going to just have the editor take over. Little did they know that, you know, Peter Hunt is like a great director as well. Um, And so he filmed the movie, was a nightmare to work with was a piece of shit the entire time and then quit the franchise before the film premiered. And they, they were trying to get him to come back to do two more and he didn't want to do it. And because of that, he kind of burned his career to the ground. And, you know, he was in stuff since, you know, he was Jorel Superman's father on the Superboy TV show. He was in, um, fucking, uh, never too young to die. Never, never too young to die. the, 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 First, John Stamos starring vehicle, which is a James Bond parody film, um, yeah, it's that's it's it, that's a weird movie if you haven't seen that one. Uh, fucking Gene Simmons plays the villain in that one. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's very yes. strange. Yeah, very very strange.
2: It's one I've heard about and I've never seen, and now it's I worth have to watch.
1: To it's worth a it watch. To the
2: uh, that gigantic the the only thing longer than my lists of books and comics to read is my lists of movies to watch
1: yeah so. of course yeah it's 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 definitely worth a worth a watch but uh but the, but all that is to say like I love George Lazenby because I a I really like him as Bond B I really like that movie it's my second favorite Bond movie but I also I love The idea that you can will yourself into greatness and then not realize what a fucking magic trick you've just done. Like if I had done that, I would have been immediately been so humble and like, thank you. I'm just happy to be here, whatever you need me to do. Um, and so I really try and there's, there's George Lazenby references in like almost all my books because I really try to internalize that idea that like, you know nothing gets done unless you the individual pushes for it but then once you're inside let that ego go you know be be you know stillness and uh confidence don't have to be diametrically opposed and um i i just I love what that guy I love what that I love the lessons that that guy can teach if we look at his life as something of a parable the Lessons of Lazenby. Love it. Yeah, exactly. I'd read that book, The Lessons of Lazenby. I'd read that book. Yeah. I have to throw in... It's a great
2: design, but when it comes to names, my favorite is still Silverborn Murder Shock. <laughs> I just think that name is just freaking brilliant. It's kind of like the murdery version of a Bond girl.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, I I appreciate that. Um, yeah, those those like... Title page, uh, you know, big cast photo things that I was doing in the book. There, it's kind of a reference to two things. One, uh, there's a really seminal CC Beck cast photo family portrait of all the Matt, the Marvel family, Mm -hmm. where you know it's Captain Marvel, Freddie Freeman, and Mary Marvel, and everybody, and they're all kind of in this big, kind of I don't even know what they're doing. They're just like in a room that has curtains on one of the walls, and they're just kind of all standing there smiling. Um, and so i i i like cast photos and i like worlds that are populated with a diversity of people um you know people from all different walks of life planets maybe who knows um and so when i i originally just did that cast photo or you know the 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 first double page cast image as like oh i'm just going to draw like it'll be fun like every issue will open with like The whole cast like jumping in the air and everybody will be like floating around Uh, and then oh maybe i'll put some more people in here and it'll be like a bunch of characters you don't see and that'll be like the joke and then who are all these people and then i realized i could do the footnote thing again and have all of those characters have footnotes on them and then like fake you know gi joe file card like backstories on all of them um and uh, yeah, when I realized when I when I had when I had that idea, I was like, oh yeah, this is. I feel like this is gonna work. I feel like this is gonna work.
0: At, at at the same time, like, and that's the thing. So much of this of this book is names. It's these cast pages with all these characters. It's coming up with names for TV shows that show on 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 dishwashers and yeah. you know books about the makings of those shows. Like, it's just it it feels like an exhaustive level of name generation. Was there ever a time where you hit Roadblocks when you were doing those things, were are like, oh fuck, I'm out of, I'm, I'm out of gas. I need a minute.
1: You know, honestly, that's like my favorite stuff to do. Like, if I could just stand it and like come up with a name, and then that would be the idea. Like, that's you know, that's that's to me, that's the fun part. Like, you know, in the in the Physicalist Today segments, there's a part where the journalist Dave Baker goes and interviews a guy who's like an obsessive Dave Baker, the cartoonist fan, and he's like, his whole identity is he's trying to be an artist but all of the art that he makes is like really derivative of quote unquote Bakerian tropes, which is, again, it's me kind of making fun of myself, but also like doing the thing. And one of the things that guys made is Larry, the boy with werewolf Arms, <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: which is just, is just so funny to me. I don't know why, but I think about like Larry, the boy with werewolf farms, like Like a couple times a week where I'm just like, I don't know what Larry, the boy with werewolf arms would be, but I just want to see that. I would read that book. (laughs) (laughs) So this is this is my next thing, right? I've got to make Larry the boy with werewolf arms. Yeah. Another component of that, too, is that, you know. um, The thing that's so exciting about getting into a fandom when you first discover whatever it is, the thing that is your jam Is that that's how it feels. It's just like a wall of names. And you don't really know what a Hermione is or, you know, what a, you know, a a Nimbus three or whatever is. And then as you spend more time in the fandom, those specifics stop, they stop sounding like white noise and they start becoming um, pathways to specific, you know, experiences. And that's kind of what I wanted in terms of the density of the book. I wanted it to have this like really. Initially fake density and then over the course of making it, it just became a real density. <laughs> um, I, I also have to say, you know, uh, one of the um, one of the people who inspired the book heavily is is uh, the writer Earl Mac Rausch, who uh, created Buckaroo Banzai. Um, and there's many, many call outs to him, both literally and jokingly. Um, uh, and his, his stuff feels that same way to me, like both the movie Buckaroo Banzai and the novelization, which if anybody doesn't know, the novelization itself is like the codex for the movie. So if the movie doesn't make any sense to you, it's because Buckaroo Banzai as a film is a joke it's like a movie that's a franchise that doesn't exist. It's like the seventh movie or whatever, where the novel is like a Sherlock Holmes style story where you're following a supporting character in it's all told from the supporting character in the movie's perspective. And he's like following Buckaroo Banzai around. He's like his, you know, Dr. Watson to Buckaroo's uh, Sherlock Holmes. And there's a lot of that density in, in Earl MacRausch's Roush's writing. Um, you know, he, he loves a good fake organization name. You know, you got the Hong Kong Cavaliers, the Blue Blaze Irregulars, the Bonsai Institute. You know, there's all these weird, you know, strange like I want to be a Blue Blaze Irregular. What the fuck does that mean? I don't know, but I want to go be
0: one. So the the world that's described in the physicalist is, is a world where government and corporations have moved against the idea of people owning things. Um, are you yourself a physical media person, whether that be, you know, long boxes, stacks of records, piles of old books, shells of Criterion, Blu-rays, anything like that?
1: Uh, yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> 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 fortunately, man. It's brutal out here, dude. My apartment is just being overwhelmed by books. Uh yes, I absolutely am. Um, I even still have my DVD collection just because I'm like, I don't know. I guess there's a part of me that's kind of paranoid that streaming is just gonna stop. It's just gonna go away. Um and uh Yeah, so I, I am a big physical media person. And I also just love the fact I just love the process of reading books. You know, the the having a pdf of a book is fine it's a it's a way of consuming the knowledge but it is not an experience it's not you know like uh you know having the heft or the girth of a book in your hand the type of paper the type of cover stock the type of embossing um the smell of the glue you know is a very specific thing um and even the you know that like i went to the i went back issue diving yesterday and like you know i got this weird old you know dell gold key captain venture issue and like it's got little drawings in it from the kid who owned it in the fucking 60s you know um and it smells great cuz it cuz newsprint has this like very earthy strange texture to it you know um and there's something about just knowing that this physical object, this like flimsy-ass piece of paper is like the same age as my parents. Like, that's crazy to me. Like, it's survived. And not only has it survived, but like, in pretty good condition. Like, there's no, you know, there's only a couple spine ticks, but like, that's crazy. Um, not that I really care about grading or any of that speculator bullshit. But like, it's just fun to own nice things. And when those nice things have been around for a long time it increases the experience it gives it a sense of gravitas and a sense of weight and um yeah i think the physical is today stuff about you know owning property i don't mean that in like a you gotta own property to have capital to like bilk money out of tenants or whatever that's not what i'm interested in more like the culture you know mm-hmm. preserving culture having a having a totemic representation of a place and a time and people um that, that's something that I, I really value and derive value from.
0: the The fiscalist culture appears to have some of the same energy, that idea of like preserving things that aren't you know there anymore, or there's less of uh, as that booth at every comic convention that sells bootleg copies of old TV shows and cartoons where the rights fell into oblivion. Have you ever bought something from that booth at a show? And in the age of streaming where companies delete content as tax write-offs, Did that booth just become more important? That's a good question.
1: Yeah. Um, So to answer the first part, yes, I definitely have bought stuff from that. Um, I'm trying to think of the last thing I bought, though. Maybe I think my partner bought a copy of a complete Spider-Man Toho, like Japanese Spider-Man TV show. I'm obsessed with that show, you know, from the depths of hell, Um, (laughs) Spider-Man. Yeah, uh, I also recently bought a copy of Cashern. Do you remember that? The Korean adaptation of the Japanese anime from like 2006 or Um I think the actual anime is called like Kashin, but the adaptation is called Kashurn. I don't know why there's another R in there, um, but it's a movie that like was one of those we can make movies on green screen movies from like the <laughs> early 2000s. It's the action is really cool though. It's like you know, tokusatsu henshin hero style story, but he's fighting like armies of robots and he's like cutting through the robot's chest with his bare hands type, shit, you know. Um, yeah, uh, so I do, I do like those. Oh, actually, that's not true. The last one I bought was a bootleg Kamen Rider DVD of Kamen Rider Black because I had lost my other bootleg that i bought from malaysia <laughs> so yeah um and does it does that take a greater seat in the era of david zaz love being the emperor um, yes yeah i mean i think it does to a certain extent but i also think that it doesn't because the culture isn't there the culture is apathetic and the culture isn't rebelling in any way other than saying, oh, give us our widget back, and then immediately going to the same streaming platform, re-upping our subscription and watching the new episode of Married at First Sight. Um, cool. So I think for a small group of people, in the same way that the physicalists are a minority of a minority of a minority, um, I think it probably does. Um, but for a mainstream generational shift, no, I, I unfortunately, I don't think it, it does. Um, but i think nostalgia in general is is a problem which is partly what the book is about like the book trades in nostalgia and it hopefully illustrates that it's a double-edged sword where you know the book is all about the the euphoria of experiencing things that are from other times and looking back into the past and having this wistful kind of oh things were so much better then because <laughs> in the science fiction you know prose settings of the book it literally was a better time like you know you could own things you could experience tv literally doesn't exist um not that that is the be all end all of the human experience it's definitely not but it's a pretty totalitarian uh, bleak future in the physicalist today sections um, but i think that there's a real problem surrounding nostalgia in terms of right now nostalgia is the thing that American culture is built around it's not based around um it's not based around a, a generating experiences it's not based around generating mercantile manufacturing or textile manufacturing or technological manufacturing all of those have been sold overseas uh, either to Mexico for agricultural stuff or to China and Japan for technical and textiles um, so the only thing right now that And for the past two decades that America uh, on a large scale, obviously I'm speaking in sweeping generalizations, is culture. We sell the myth of American superiority and we sell the myth of the American dream through our media. But what does it say about the American dream and American superiority when the only thing we have to sell is, hey, remember back when? And you see that manifest in our political structures. Half the country right now is just saying we want to go back to back when. And the other half is saying... I don't know man that sounds pretty bad remember jim crow that yes. wasn't so great um so you know i uh i i have a healthy sense of skepticism surrounding the nostalgia bubble i hope that it will burst and i hope that our country finds positive ways forward but it seems like it's going to be a little bumpy before then
0: for the next little bit yes <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I think so So, as we're we're winding down here, is there anything else uh, coming up for you uh, in the immediate future that you can talk about that you want to make sure you get a plug in for?
1: Uh, I mean, just the other book that I've been making and self-publishing, uh, Halloween Boy. If, uh, if the stuff we've been talking about here sounds cool, Halloween Boy is very of a piece. Uh, frankly, it was me being like, I want to do more of the stuff in this MTMH world in terms of tone and feeling without the pro stuff. So I don't have to spend four years convincing people that it's worth paying attention to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Halloween boy is like, it's about an action adventure hero raised on a floating Island in lower orbit who serves as the patron saint of the impossible. So if somebody has a situation they can't get themselves out of, or a relic buried deep at the center of the earth, show up at Halloween Boys Skull-Shaped Island and go, please help me, sir. And he'll, uh, if he deems it impossible enough, uh, help you out. There's five issues of it uh, currently available on the interwebs.
0: Uh, Any uh, upcoming signings, appearances, convention stuff going on Um, for you?
1: Yeah, at the end of February, I'm going to be at Emerald City Comic-Con. And then for the rest of the year, I'm doing a bunch of them. I'm doing... In May, I'm doing TCAF. I'm also gonna do C2E2 and San Diego Comic-Con. And I think I'm gonna do New York. Penultimate
2: question. What are you reading right now? Prose, mm.
1: comics, mm. whatever you got. Uh, the last comic I read that I really enjoyed was Sammy Harkum's Blood of the Virgin. Um, I think it's a masterpiece published by Pantheon. It follows an Iraqi born. Australian-raised Jewish man uh, who moves to Los Angeles to try and become a movie director. And he starts working as an editor in a really shitty, low-rent genre movie studio. Definitely not Roger Corman. And um, (laughs) he gets the opportunity to sell one of the scripts he's written, which is called Blood of the Virgin. It's a werewolf movie. And uh, the book chronicles both the production of the movie and also his interpersonal strife as his marriage falls apart and he tries to navigate the seedy underbelly of los angeles in the 1970s and the book is loosely based on the life of um oh my gosh the director who i can't think of his fucking name now married sissy spacek what the fuck is that guy's name bogdanovich bogdanovich um loosely based on bogdanovich's life and uh but it's like his life and sammy Harkum's life like shoved together um which is really cool uh and it's a it's a triumph it took him 14 years to make uh it's just unreal how good it is it's unreal um i found it deeply moving and also relatable hey spending way too long on projects and trying to navigate
0: los angeles <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Dave, this has been a fantastic time. Final question as we release you back into the world. How can people follow you online and keep up with Mary Tyler Moorhawk and everything else you got going on?
1: Yeah, you can follow me online at xdavebakerx on all the socials, uh, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram. Um, And if you want to buy books, you can get them at bookstores or on my personal website, heydavebaker.com. All right, Dave, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, the guys, thank you. This was a great interview. Uh thank you for reading the book.
0: That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WM a is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and Will Nevin. You can listen to WM QA on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible. And at comicsxf.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQA at slash comicsxf, where a dollar donation gets you a shout out at the end of every episode. A $2 donation gets you early access to WMQA and a shout out at the end of every episode. A $3 donation gets you a sticker, early access, and a shout out. A $5 donation gets you access to our monthly bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the comic appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. A $25 donation lets you request a primer, one of our custom reading guides for a series, character, or creator at XF. and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Lisa Slack, Will Redman, Tobias Carroll, Mike Sagawa, Will Nevin, Liz Large, Asimov Fangirl, Carla Pacheco, and Robert Secundus. You're all special and we love you. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at mattlaz 1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. You can also follow ComicsXF on Facebook, Instagram, and Blue Sky. And until next week, remember, Rob Liefeld's greatest contribution to comics isn't Deadpool or Youngblood or even Major X. It's his impression of Todd McFarlane. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.